Well, Dr. Buttermere, thank you so much for joining us today. We're very excited to have you on the podcast. I guess to get us started, uh, would you just be able to briefly describe your career journey and we can move from there? Sure. So uh, first of all, please call me Sam. I think everyone, I try to encourage everyone to just call me Sam. Um, so my career journey, I, it's kind of remarkable that I have one already. It doesn't feel like it's been that long since I left high school, but uh, the paper says otherwise. <laughs> so I started by doing um, uh, my bachelor's degree in health sciences at McMaster. I finished that and thought uh, that clinical medicine sounded really interesting to me. It was always something I was interested in, even kind of, you know, as a kid, I thought the human body was absolutely fascinating. Um and so I applied to medical school and came here to Queens. Um, and through that time, I thought that I would be a clinician with a social focus in that I recognized that there were um, societal issues that impacted health, but that my main work would be one-on-one -on -one with patients. And um, I then started my clerkship, which is the clinical portion of medical school. And after a few months of that, started to realize that the social implications on health and societal implications, um, structural influences on health, were not something I could easily ignore. Um, it felt like every patient I saw, their health was a product of their environment, um, whether it be kind of the the biggest influence or even just part of the influence, um, it, it was much less medicine and much more <laughs> um, management of uh, social struggles. And I felt some moral distress working as a clinician in that environment without acknowledging and working to change the structural barriers that people face to health. Um, and so... After a lot of reflection and a lot of reading of potential specialties on the on the um, Canadian Residency Matching Service website, the CARMS website, I realized that public health was a specialty. Um, and I'd always thought public health was interesting, thought that I might go and do an MPH as part of my training at some point. But I really always thought it would be complementary to clinical work. And once I discovered the specialty of public health, I realized that truly it fit my skill set better and, and fit my interests better. Um, so I did electives in public health and fell in love. I really enjoyed thinking about problems on the societal level. Um, and I felt renewed in my work in the clinical context because I knew that I was working beyond the clinical context. So I applied to public health programs that included family medicine training and um, matched here to Queens, which I was very excited about because I knew that the family medicine program and public health programs here were excellent um, and started my family medicine training, um, which I did really enjoy. I thought I would finish my entire of residency working, you know, maybe 50% clinical, 50% public health. Um, and then I moved into my public health residency, and I continued to do clinical work on the side, things like sexual health clinic, working as a hospitalist uh, on the weekends, um, doing some longitudinal family medicine clinics. Um, 
and I felt like I was hitting my groove working in local public health here in Kingston. Uh, and then obviously 2020 hits uh, and um, we <laughs> we experience a big public health crisis unlike one we've seen in a very long time uh, with COVID. And um, at that time I was on a parental leave, but when I returned to work, it was clear that uh, there was a lot of demand for public health work um, and also that balancing that work and clinical work wasn't exactly right for the stage of work that I'm at. And so I decided to look towards um, staying more in the public health realm. Um, just through happenstance uh, and knowing Duncan, he encouraged me to apply to teach uh, the uh, health, Canadian Health System course, 803. So that year I taught 803. And then um, Brad encouraged me to apply to teach 805. So I applied to teach 805 and I taught 805 in the fall that year, um, leading evidence-informed action. Um, and I, I really enjoyed my work with the university. I was also uh, an advisor for, a public health advisor for the university at the time regarding COVID. Uh, and it felt like a really comfortable fit. Um, I never saw myself as an academic in terms of research, uh, but I actually found that I liked the administrative side of things and I like working with students. So um, it ended up being that there was someone needed to help with the residency program. Uh, so I took that position and um, then I was offered the position of being the director of the MPH program here and I would gladly took it. So that's how you got stuck with me. <laughs> That's an amazing career journey, and we're happy to be with you today as well and have you as the department head and one of our profs, too. Yeah, well, um, so I think for me, it's it's really powerful to see so many students engaged in thinking about how we can make our system and structures better to serve our communities and improve the health of our communities. And if I want to be influential, if I can influence, you know, 40 to 60 students a year. That's pretty powerful in terms of career paths. So uh, I, I think it's it's great. And it's fulfilling that need for working on things at the structural level that I just wasn't getting in clinical medicine. I think it's also really cool that we both went to McMaster for Bachelor of Health Sciences. So we have that connection as well. And I'm curious, what experiences did you have in undergrad that motivated you to pursue public health later on? Yeah, so actually, um, I think McMaster was a good entry for me into the world of public health because, um, at least in my program, a lot of our learning was centered in inquiry-based methods, um, which meant uh, a lot of self-directed learning. Um, and I thrived in that environment. I actually really, really enjoyed it. Um, I liked thinking about problems and trying to scope out what those problems were and how broad to examine them. I liked diving deep into the literature uh, at my own pace. And, and I really liked working with classmates. So, so much of our learning ended up being in small groups rather than individually. And that energized me. Um, so I knew at the end of undergrad that I needed a job with a lot of social interaction. And I thought clinical medicine would give that to me because you're talking with patients all day. <laughs> but it turns out that the kind of conversations you have when you're problem solving um, an issue in public health uh, are very different than the kind of social interactions you have with patients. Um, I find that much of what you're doing in the clinical environment, you're um, 
you're teaching, uh, you're collecting information, you're empathizing, but it's really an, about the person in front of you, as it should be. Um, whereas in public health, it's not about either person, it's about the problem. And we respect each other, obviously, but it's more about figuring out the issue together um, and understanding the issue more deeply together. Um, and that level of collaboration, I really, really enjoy. Um, and uh, I, I missed that, actually, in medical school. I, re I remember thinking about how much I missed that from undergrad. So I'm glad that I've managed to find a career where I can use my medical degree, but still get that level of collaboration. And I'm sure McMaster would love hearing me talk about collaboration. <laughs> That's their, their big thing. Who knows? Maybe Heltzai might have their own radio show or podcast <laughs> yeah, at some it's point. True. It's true. They can call me up. <laughs> and I actually think it's amazing that you're a public health physician, and I'd love to learn more about it. So what does it mean to you to be a public health physician? And how do you balance public health and individual medicine in your career? Absolutely. I think public health is interesting because uh, at least when I started in medical school, I had no idea of what the scope of a public health physician was. And I think a lot of the population is, you know, in a similar boat that I was in. Um, I remember when I was in my near the end of medical school, I called my dad to say that I was going to be pivoting and I was going to be applying to public health instead of um, at the time I thought I might be an obstetrician and gynecologist. And he on the phone got really quiet. And then he said, are you sure you want to quit medical school this late in the game? And I said, Dad, public health physicians are still physicians. I'm finishing medical school. I'm just gonna apply to residency in public health. And he let out a big sigh of relief. But I think that epitomizes often what uh, the understanding of public health physicians is, which is that people don't understand. Uh, maybe now after COVID, there's a bit more public understanding of public health as a career for physicians. And um, so the day-to-day -day work actually varies a lot um, depending on where you're working and the kind of portfolio you carry. But in general, um, if you're working in local public health, you're responsible for, um, at least in Ontario, ensuring that uh, your public health unit and that organization is fulfilling the mandate of the health Protection and Promotion Act. Um, so that involves elements of protection and promotion, right? Uh, and, th and that mix is really fun, actually, because um, the health protection side often has more acute issues. So issues with regards to IPAC lapses, um, outbreaks, uh, often um, getting different infectious disease cases that are reportable illnesses, investigating those and figuring out how best support to the, the individuals to prevent spread in the community. Um, particularly, I would say over the past 10 to 20 years, we've really pivoted um, to uh, being less of a punitive approach in terms of dealing with individuals who have communicable diseases to trying to work with them to reduce spread as much as possible. Um, but there's also this kind of secondary level of thinking about, you know, how can we tackle this problem on the systemic level? So say we're getting a lot of cases of chlamydia in the community, um, you know, dealing with those cases and, and ensuring that the contact tracing and stuff is, is completed. But also, why are we seeing these changes in these trends? And what can we do from a health promotion perspective to help reduce transmission in our community? And, and a lot of that ends up 
you need to really understand your community and be um, connected with them to understand why we're seeing changes in behavior. So, so that's really fun. Um, and I like kind of trying to think through problems that way. Um, and then we also do a lot around things like injury prevention programs, um, sitting on uh, groups at the community level to um, talk about community planning um, and uh, a lot of interaction with the community in terms of um, program planning. So it's a big mix and um, you, you kind of don't always know what's going to cross your your desk. And that's what I really enjoyed in residency. Um, at this point, I'm not working in local public health. I'm working um, obviously more in administrative roles here at the university. Uh, but a lot of the stuff ends up the same. Um, you're doing a lot of problem solving, connecting with other people on bigger problems. And um, I, I get to use a lot of the same skills, even though thankfully I'm not dealing with as much communicable disease at this point now <laughs> now that we're doing a lot less contact tracing with COVID. That's really excellent, uh, Sam. Thank you so much for a very, thus far, a very introspective take on your <laughs> career path. Um, what, something that really stuck with me, you mentioned this point where you really pivoted in mm -hmm. your career journey when you were doing your clerkship. Yeah. And I'm just curious, were there any individuals or particular moments that really led you in the direction of public health? Because I, I feel as though a lot of us, we, we look for reassurance from others when we're making major life decisions like that. And our audience might be a little inspired to hear about any mentorship oh, you received. Absolutely. I had a lot of mentorship. And, and I would say if I had been at a different school or even in a different class in medical school of you know, students, I wouldn't be where I am today. Um, part of the reason I ended up uh, finding an interest in public health is that one of my classmates um, had worked as a public health nurse before she came to medical school. Um, uh, and she knew she wanted to go into public health from day one. So she came into medical school and always had that public health perspective. So I kind of vaguely knew it existed. Um, and then a few days after I had kind of my revelation of, oh, I should maybe consider this as a as a career, I ran into her on the bus uh, moving between hospitals. And I, her name's Peppy. I said, Peppy, you know, I'm thinking about doing public health, but I don't really know where to start. And she said, well, like, this is when academic half day is. These are the people you should email. These are, you know, who you can connect with. And um, so that Friday, I went to academic half day for public health. And I ran into um, Dr. Gemmel, uh, who used to be the medical officer of health for this region. Um, and he's still involved with our residency program. And, and uh, the session was fantastic. It was exactly the kind of um, content that I'd been missing from medical school. It was that kind of bigger thinking, problem solving, no easy answers type messes that public health tends to have. And um, it was such a positive experience that immediately I was like, great, I'm going to set up an elective. I'm going to come here and do an elective in public health. Um, and at the time, it um, he was the, still the, the medical officer's health for this area. Uh, and Dr. Kieran Moore was the associate medical officer of health. And so I ended up being assigned to him to do the elective. Um, and he was a phenomenal mentor and continued to be a phenomenal mentor throughout my years of uh, residency training. Part of the reason I wanted to stay here was because I knew I liked working with him and I knew I'd be working with him a lot. And I did. Um, and uh, his enthusiasm um, was infectious. 
<laughs> public health joke. Um, and uh, he he always felt empowered to try to find solutions to difficult problems in ways that other people might shy away. So if something seemed difficult or involved a lot of, you know, parts to bring together or maybe was an expensive thing to do, he didn't let that deter him from trying. And I think that gave me um, a lot of insight into the fact that, you know, we can actually achieve a lot more than we expect if we just if we don't let the kind of the naysaying get us down before giving it a shot. Um, and uh, so now I try to bring that perspective with me moving forward in, in my pro- program planning. Um, I think, you know, okay, if we could reach the ideal state, what would that be? And then what are our barriers to getting there and how can we tackle those? So um, I, I've been very lucky with the people I've worked with. And uh, I, I think one big takeaway is that, um, at least for me, everyone I met was incredibly friendly and excited to be um, supportive of my journey. And for, for the most part, I would say the people I've worked with in public health would be happy to hear from you as students um, and uh, try to be approachable. Um, I myself am very approachable. Feel free to fire me off an email or come visit me in my office. Uh, I tend to be there on Tuesdays, Wednesdays, and Thursdays. Um, and I would love to have a chat and see if I can help you figure out your career direction too. I'll definitely be visiting your office more often, hopefully. <laughs> Good. We can have a coffee. It'll be nice. Mm-hmm. Especially because public health physician is a career that I personally am interested in. And I think it's amazing that you had a classmate in medical school who is already very invested in public health. I feel that many medical school cohorts may not necessarily have someone like that. And I'm wondering, how do you think we can inspire more doctors and doctors in training to have that interest in public health? So... I think you're right. It is uncommon that um, someone enters medical school with that vision in mind, and um, it definitely changed my career path. I I don't think I would have – I'm not confident I would have connected the dots the same way if she hadn't been around to uh, connect with. Um, And so – that to me highlights simple awareness, right? A lot of people, you know, go into medicine and they picture themselves as clinicians, right? Just the way I did. You you don't really realize that there's quite a few directions in medicine that don't involve um, direct patient interaction. And that those can be fulfilling careers, even though so much of medical school is really focused on that patient interaction. Um, and so... For us here at Queen's, we we try to connect with the medical students um, and we try to make sure that they know, you know, we're out there and that this is a viable career path. And and I think it does make a difference. We've had, um, you know, Queen's applicants for a few years now, uh, quite a few of them. So um, we know that we're, we're contributing to the public health pool, but um, it's difficult in some, uh, some universities, you know, they're not very... There's no residency program, so they're not particularly tied to the local public health community, and um, that exposure just isn't there. And unfortunately, particularly in the past few years, I think um, the job of public health physician has been somewhat challenging based on uh, the social environment and uh, with regards to the pandemic. And um, there's a lot of plus sides to the job, but people aren't necessarily seeing that in the media either, right? So um, it 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 really takes that exposure to what the job looks like and, and mentors within the field to, to apply and to decide to make that a career path. 
Feeding back to a previous point about the sort of mentorship you have received, I think you really embody a a strong sense of approachability that likely really resonates with patients and students, certainly. And I know you're also very passionate about networking, and you're a bit of an advocate for uh, networking skills in your students. So I, I'm curious if if you could just succinctly describe to our audience how they can go about networking, maybe if they don't have the confidence to do so right now. Oh, absolutely. Thank you for bringing that up. Um, so I might seem super confident in, the, in this interview and in, in front of the classroom, but I promise you I did not start there. Um, in particular, in undergrad, I found it really difficult to approach my professors and to approach individuals for things like reference letters or for even just general career advice. I, I thought they weren't interested in talking to me and that um, I would be you know, a bother. And I was worried about taking up space. Um, I think it's important to note the intersectionality of that. Um, Individuals who face oppression for a variety of reasons typically will find that more difficult um, because society hasn't necessarily emphasized their space. Um, And so uh, in particular, I think it's worth considering that you know, how can I help people and show that, you know, be deliberate so that they feel like they're able to take up space in terms of my social network. Um, And in part, I do that by hopefully, you know, being as approachable as possible. But I think, you know, as somebody on the other side who's listening to this, if if you do feel like it's difficult to approach others, um, I can say that, Generally speaking, people are excited to share their enthusiasm for their career paths, and they're excited to share that with uh, individuals who are eager to listen um, and to connect with. And um, if they don't, the worst that'll happen is that they just don't answer your email <laughs> or or they, you know, you talk to them for two minutes at the end of class and then that's the end of it, right? So, um so many opportunities in my career have come up just by virtue of the people that I've connected with and formed friendships with. And so I would encourage you to, um, you know, especially now that we're doing more in person, take the time to attend um, things like the uh, the seminar series or guest lectures um, and, and make a point to ask a question. And if it's not the the you know, if, if it's not the world's best question, I don't think, you know, an hour later, anyone will remember. <laughs> um, but if it is a thoughtful question, or one that, you know, the the individual speaking um, enjoys, then that makes you stand out. And that kind of gives you a bit of an in and a bit of a connection. Um, so it's easy to forget that social ties matter a lot, but social ties do matter a lot in terms of, um, you know, getting opportunities for jobs. Um, and LinkedIn is the way these days. <laughs> and um, making sure people have, you know, heard your name and seen your face still does matter. Um, and if you find that difficult, you can feel free to practice with me and come up and ask me questions at the end of class or fire me off an email and I will be glad to meet with you. Um, you will not get a no from me. The worst you'll get is me taking a week or two to answer the email. <laughs> I can't. I can never promise expedience, but I will make time for you. 
That's motivating to hear. And hopefully Peyton and I will be able to ask questions at the next seminar as well. Yes, We've heard please. about the importance of networking quite often from Duncan, from Lisa, who's in charge of our practicum placements as well. And we're still building up the confidence to do that, but hopefully soon. It's a learned skill. I think that's the other important thing is that you don't, that confidence comes with time. Um, and, and the more you're kind of in a field, the more you learn. But also it comes from practicing, right? So practicing asking the questions makes it a little easier next time to ask the question, that sort of thing. Um, and at least, you know, I can't speak for everyone, but I know Duncan also really loves talking with students. So, <laughs> you know, he won't be bothered if you bother him. Was there a moment for you where you realized the importance of networking? So someone in particular that you connected with who changed your career trajectory? I don't know if there was one specific moment, um, but there were a few moments where I realized the power of it. Uh, I did my policy rotation during residency with David Walker um, and a few others in the School of Policy Studies, and through that was asked to join teaching the health policy course. And I would never have been asked to help teach that course had I not done a project with them, right? And they realized, oh, she understands a lot about health systems and the Canadian system and, well, let's say the Ontario system, but also the other systems in Canada, and um, would be a value add for us in this in this course. Um, if, I, if I hadn't done that project, I, that knowledge just never would have been there. Um, and I, I realized that it was because of the connections I'd formed that I was given the opportunity. Um, the same thing happened to me while I was doing my master's in public health. Uh, I went to the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine in, um, in the UK, and uh, I made time to talk with one of my professors after class to ask him some questions and get some guidance for my summer project. And he ended up connecting me with someone who ran a social enterprise called Kaleidoscope. Um, and I, I ended up working on a project with them um, for a semester. And I met a ton of people working uh, within um, NICE, the NHS, uh, Public Health England, that I never would have had connections with otherwise. But it was simply because I'd talked to my professor who knew someone else who knew someone else that I, I formed these connections. And um, I think if I decide, if I had ended up deciding to stay in England, I could have made a go of it myself just through the people I'd met. Um, but instead, I, I came back here uh, and I was very happy to. I think the other thing was that it was really clear to me in residency that I had an easier go of things in terms of starting projects um, um, and uh, getting onto different committees because I'd been a Queen's medical student. So I stayed in the same university. I'd already had all those social connections from the end of medical school. And by the time I started residency, I, I kind of was able to hit the ground running. Um, and that was really clear to me when I saw that, you know, I it was e a little easier for me than some of my colleagues just because of who I knew. Um, and even now, you know, if, if uh, just today, uh, Lisa comes into my office asking about a different health unit and whether we can send students there. And I was like, oh, yeah, I know, you know, I know this this person who worked there, happy to send off an email, right? Those kind of connections help speed things along. I think a big part of networking, too, you bring up confidence, and it's important to have more confidence in yourself when speaking up. But it also requires a bit of humility on your part. 
So it's it's this willingness to be wrong or to say something dumb. Yes. Not on purpose, but but to admit that, hey, I'm I'm going to take a chance here and speak with this person and I'm going to have confidence in what I'm saying, but I'm also going to have this willingness to maybe approach them even if I don't have the best thing to say. Sure. Absolutely. Yes, absolutely. I think, um, the like I said, the question doesn't have to be perfect. If I think back to, um, you know, the past few years of teaching classes, the students that I remember and that stand out to me are the ones who made comments. I have no idea what they said anymore. Like, I could not tell you. Uh, there's a few that I remember as being particularly, you know, really insightful. But even the ones, um, you know who maybe had those moments where they the the point they shared was was not quite 100% right. I don't remember that anymore. What I remember is that they were um they were enjoyable to be around. They were participating in the discussion that they were um you know eager to learn. And unfortunately, I think it really disadvantages people who are maybe less extroverted. And unfortunately, it, it's harder to remember people that, you know, are taking it in and focusing on learning but but don't don't speak up. Um, and so that is an, kind of a structure of our, our human social interactions. Um, and for individuals who do find it a little bit more difficult to speak up, uh, I recognize and I kind of I see you and I see how that that's hard. Um, but but fundamentally, we haven't figured out a way to get around that societally. Uh, and, and so um, do your best to try to speak up. And hopefully my classrooms are a good place to practice that skill. I'm thinking back to an anecdote you mentioned when you had decided to switch into a public health specialty and a phone call you had with your father (laughs) and maybe a bit of a misconception about what public health medicine really is. And I I wonder if that's maybe a, a broader issue in society where people aren't very aware of that specialty. Um, I wonder if you have any thoughts on whether that barrier exists and how we can make people more aware of what public health medicine has to offer. I think there is an element of that barrier. The biggest issue coming especially out of COVID that I've seen is that people didn't seem to have a good grasp on what the jurisdiction of a public health physician was. So unfortunately, public health physicians were getting a lot of ire for decisions that were being made outside of public health tables. The the Health Protection and Promotion Act in Ontario is very clear about the uh, powers that is are delegated to a public health physician who's working as a medical officer of health. Um, and things that go beyond that scope are not within the power of a medical officer of health. Um, and so it was the the premier who ultimately decided, you know, to to close all restaurants or to do lockdowns, that sort of thing. It, it's not within the purview of any public health physician. So much of public health physician work ends up being working to influence policymakers and decision makers on choosing course rather than being the one to make the decision themselves. And um, it resulted, at least in my eyes, to a lot of unfair uh, frustration and anger being directed towards physicians in environments where they they had no ability to do anything. Um, and of course, there was a lot of debate, you know, there were strong feelings on both sides, which you know, means you're kind of stuck between a rock and a hard place. You're never going to be able to make a decision that everyone's happy with. That's tricky. Um, but so much of our our work 
goes beyond um, pandemic management, right? Uh, and that's hidden from public view. Um, if we're doing our job right for things like injury prevention, it's invisible, uh, same with vaccines, right? If if we're va- getting really high vaccination rates in our community to the point where measles doesn't spread because we have a 95% plus immunization rate, then we're not seeing cases of measles and it stays out of the news. So a lot of the work we end up doing is prevention of disease, um, which is a good thing. But by its very nature, prevention is easy to ignore because it doesn't have that kind of direct story or uh, incident that can be pointed at. So um, when we're doing our jobs well, people don't notice us. <laughs> and uh, and that's a little, a little unfortunate. But at the same time, I, most people that work in public health, myself included, are very happy to stay out of the, out of the limelight. It's definitely something that was emphasized a lot last semester in Duncan's class as well, the idea of public health people putting out the fire before it starts in a way. Yeah, absolutely. Or, you know, making sure that there's there's no wires sparking that start the fire in the first place, right? That's really what we do. And, uh, you know, our, our dream is to not have a job, <laughs> you know, get rid of all... all the impacts altogether. But, you know, every time you, you know, prevent um, an outbreak or prevent, you know, road traffic injuries, there's no story associated with that. The person who didn't get in the car crash has no idea that they didn't get into a car crash because of the work that you made, that you did advocating for lower road speeds. So that, that kind of stuff Uh, is inherent to the work in prevention. And um, I think for those of us who go into public health, we need, you need to be comfortable with the fact that you won't always get recognition for the good work that's happening. And you just need to take comfort in the fact that you see the numbers start to drop from your data. The unsung heroes of people's health and well-being. You mentioned earlier that the premiers are ultimately the ones in charge of making the decisions regarding health. And you also shared that you studied at the UK. So I'm wondering, what did you notice about the health system in the UK that you would like to see implemented here in Canada? Oh, interesting. Um, Well, so first, I mean, there's no, I guess, one thing that I would want to do for the Canadian system. Well, no, I take that back, actually. Um, I, I think one thing that happened really well in the UK that I would like to see the provinces implement broadly uh, is the idea of uh, an easy attachment to primary care. So similar to work in public health where, you know, we're avoiding, we're we're preventing the, the wires from sparking to make the fire in the first place. Primary care medicine um, can really prevent people from experiencing more illness and um, help promote wellness. And I think that right now it is so difficult across pretty much every province to access primary care unless you're already connected to it. And if we could flip to the model that they have in the UK, where 
you know, your postal code decides who you're assigned to and you're assigned to a clinic and you have a doctor because of where you live. And if you move, then you move clinics based on your postal code. Um, the UK system currently is facing uh, substantial challenges due to years of dramatic underfunding. So it is probably not a, a system I wish to emulate currently, but I think that aspect of the system was really, really good. There was no doubt as to where you go if you need to see a, a, a primary care physician. In the UK, they're generally called GPs. Here, it would usually be family doctors, but ideally, it would be a team model. So sometimes you're seeing um, you know, nurse practitioners or nurses or even um, other health professionals uh, that can deal with specific issues. So, you know, if you have shoulder strain, it would be great if you could see a physiotherapist, right? Why do you need to see a physician for that as your first step? Um, I think rethinking how that works would be really interesting on the system level. Um, And fundamentally, people wouldn't have to be questioning, you know, where do I go for care? Because right now, so many people, when they ask themselves that question, the only option they have is the emergency room. And that's really inefficient um, and puts a lot of strain on our system. So Sam, in addition to your roles as a program director, public health physician, you're also, of course, an educator. And so I'm just curious if you could speak generally about what your teaching philosophy is and how you like to communicate to the future students of public health. So um, I really, really enjoy teaching. Uh, I think it's been consistent for me um, throughout uh, my residency and now my my practicing career that um, some of my best moments involve learners. Um, I think their excitement and enthusiasm for learning challenging concepts is really gives me energy and reminds me why I really enjoy thinking about the problems that I spend time thinking about. Um, I try to, instead of overloading people with detail, try to help students learn an approach to understanding an issue. Because what's more useful for you leaving any course that you take with me is not, you know, the minutiae of detail that I've given you that you're probably going to forget, but rather how you learn to conceptualize challenges and problems. Um, So that's particularly relevant in a course like the Canadian health system where, um, you know, I could have you memorize how many physicians there are in Canada, but that number changes every year and it's not 100% accurate, I'm sure. Um, And rather, I want you to understand why healthcare systems are so challenging and where we might get the biggest bang for our buck in terms of influencing change in those systems. Um, and so I structure my classes on trying to build on that uh, depth of understanding. Um, and a big part of that comes from, um, hopefully generating enthusiasm and in terms of engagement with the content. So having students do their own readings, you know, think about, um, health system problems when they're reading the news. That's so valuable in terms of developing a 
deeper understanding. Um, and, and that doesn't really come from assignments. I can't force you to have that depth of understanding, but rather I can try to encourage it by having weekly discussions on the topic. Um, I also try to keep my lectures a little bit more snappy so that they're not, you know, three hours of you listening to me talk. Um, and that they include a lot of space for discussion. Um, when possible, I like having it where um, students generate ideas and thoughts before we dive into the material. So for those of you who ha are in 803, you'll know that we spent time thinking about what a health system includes before I told you what a health system includes, because you know it, it helped encourage broader thought around what inputs we need for a health system. Um, and then usually I like to give assignments that maybe push you outside your comfort zone in terms of um, inquiry-based uh, approach. So instead of me giving you, you know, this is the readings, please write an essay based on this question that relates directly to the readings, I'd much rather give you something really broad um, that I've, I haven't necessarily taught to in class that you dive into yourself. So for instance, in 803, we're doing um, the policy assignments for the end of the term. You're choosing your own topics. I'm not telling you what topics to do. And um, I want to see how deep you can go on your own. Um, and I'm here to support you. If you have questions, um, if you if you need guidance, I'm around to help with that. But fundamentally, it's a really good skill to learn how to dive into a problem and and approach a a solution on your own. That's a workplace skill. So that's kind of some of the attitudes I bring to my teaching. A big aspect of public health, of course, is communicating knowledge and knowledge translation. And I'm just curious, uh, since becoming a lecturer, has your approach to communicating with um, fellow professionals and, and patients changed? Um, I would think it's actually maybe the opposite, that all of my work in public health um, and my work as a clinician has influenced how I structure teaching. You know, I would have thought maybe in before I did medical school, for instance, that, you know, a good lecture had a, a slide a minute or whatever and tons of detail and proved how much you know about something. And then you give them all the content so that they can know about something, too. When in reality, there's limits to how much we can know and that there will always be limits in, to how much we can know, but that a skill that we all need to work on is how we know more. How do we how do we deepen our knowledge, um, and and how can we examine the structures that are in place uh, that we're taught that um, minimize perspectives of one group over another, for instance. All of that stuff matters. Uh, I dive into that more in, in eight oh five. You know. Um, Research. We talk about research and evidence informing our decisions, but fundamentally, how do we decide who we give money to to do the research to decide what we do going forward? There are so many questions that, you know, I've thought of alone that I would love to do research projects on that I have no funding for or time for. There's a lot of questions that have been unasked. And um, are we skewing the information we gather to support uh, the structures that currently exist in society, for instance. Those are, you know, big questions. And those are big questions that I started asking myself in my years working in public health. 
and, and realizing that, you know, it's easy to be dogmatic about things like prenatal nutrition, but fundamentally, we don't have all the answers. And, and how do you navigate that tension? I think I, I try to bring that attitude to my classes. Um, and, and I think it, it uh, I, I hope, I like to think it translates. <laughs> I agree that an inquiry-based approach is really important, especially now as we encourage people to continue learning for themselves too. And that's part of the reason that I really like this structure in your class, Sam, actually, especially starting with the segment of discussing the news. And I think it's really important to stay on top of current events as well. Regarding that, I noticed that both you and Duncan start your classes in a similar way with discussing current events and what showed up on the news that week. Out of curiosity, who came up with the idea first? Oh, that was Duncan, 100%. That was something he did in 803 when he used to teach it. Uh, and uh, there was no way I was getting rid of it. It's so valuable to it, it really gives a, uh, a lot of context right if, if there's an issue that people have front and center in their minds because they heard a news you know segment about it a couple days ago then it's a lot easier for individuals to start diving in and ask questions like is you know what angle is this being presented as and you know what inform who does this serve why did this policy become why was this created or pushed forward? Um, what are the potential impacts of this policy? Those sorts of questions um, are much easier to answer when everyone's familiar with the topic. And and usually, you know, if everyone's paying a little bit of attention to the news, you'll you'll know what the story of the day is, right? And so it it gives us all something to talk about. And and the nice thing too is that there's no clear answer. We can. I can conjecture as to what I think the impacts will be, but fundamentally it's real time. So we're just going to have to keep our eyes on it and see what happens in a few months. Right. Um, that, uh, that keeps it fresh. Yeah. Definitely. Was this a learning method that you were exposed to during your own education? Oh, absolutely. Um, so uh, in public health residency, every Friday morning, we do our academic half day, uh, which is, um, it includes discussions, lectures, case reports, that sort of thing. And the first half hour, um, sometimes we would do practice exam questions, but but often we would talk about, you know, oh, what had we seen in the news that week about public health? And um, talk more deeply about, you know, the measles case that had popped up somewhere or the rabies case that was in BC and and what was happening with that and and what the implications were from a public health perspective or how you would approach that as a local medical officer of health. So um, that sort of uh, talk of the daily news was really useful. And then when I was um, at the local public health unit working um, with Kieran and the other residents um, at KFLNA, we would go around every morning um, and get the kind of news of the day from the different health protection teams. So we would ask um, our uh, environmental health lead, you know, what's going on? What new cases do you have? That sort of thing to try to keep tabs on what was going on in the community. Um, and uh, again, so much learning happened in that environment that I feel like you know, it's it's really useful to bring that context in into the classroom. 
I agree. I think there's a lot we can learn through discussions. And I'm curious, both when you were a student and now as your role as educator, what has stood out to you about these types of discussions? Um, I think what's interesting about these types of discussions is that um, you can really go deep depending on the perspective of the people that are there. So the way we talk about the case in 803 might look a little different than the way we talk about the case among public health residents, um, because the implications might be different depending on context, that sort of thing. Uh, and, and you can learn so much from understanding the lens of the people that you're working with. So, uh, you know, it might sound like, I, you know, when I was a resident and then I was also teaching 803, it might have been like, oh, are you having the same conversation three times? Well, no, I'm not. I'm having three different conversations about the same thing. And each time I get different perspectives and, and a different understanding. Um, uh, as much as it's comfortable to think that there's um, an objective way to understand our society, uh, I like to take um, an approach that really recognizes that the lenses of the people that we we talk with uh, are all valid um, and different and that sometimes they're competing with each other, but that doesn't make any one of them less valid. So um, I, I think hearing different, different viewpoints is, is always good. All right, Sam, I'm always excited to hear about all the different opportunities and projects you've been involved with. And I guess I start naturally thinking to the future. And I wonder, are there any initiatives you're hoping to get involved with? Oh, mm. so um, right now, I mean, this is a new position for me uh, at the Department of Public Health Sciences. Um, And being the director of the MPH program, I, I think for me, what I'd like to see moving forward is getting some depth with uh, Dr. Philpott's vision for radical collaboration. There's so much I feel like we could do um, to broaden our perspectives by involving different um, different academic backgrounds and different kind of lenses of understanding uh, into our education. Uh, and then the other thing is, you know, doing some kind of bigger level rethink of um, – what are we teaching? Is it what we should be teaching? Are we doing teaching it the best way? Could we completely restructure how we do things? Um, I don't know if we should, <laughs> but I like thinking through those questions. Um, and if you have any thoughts on on that, feel free to come and, and share them with me. As students, your perspective is incredibly valuable. Um, and then otherwise... I don't have any major projects I'm eager to get involved with right now, um, but I'm always kind of open for opportunities if people need a, an extra public health doctor's perspective. Um, I, I'm interested in finding out more. And I'm looking forward to hearing more as well. So for my final question, many of our listeners are Queen students, in particular MPH students or future MPH students. What advice would you have for all of us as aspiring public health professionals? I, I think for me, there's a couple of things. One, please value your perspective. Um, you, you have something to share. 
uh, and your experiences and your lived background are worthwhile uh, and bring value to our community's work in public health. And hopefully that can help you combat that imposter syndrome a little bit. You're, you are uh, valued and it's good to have you and we're glad to have you. Um, I think anyone who's committed to improving the health of our population is someone I want to be working with. So um, I'm, uh, I'm very glad to, to, he- to hear that enthusiasm. Um, and then beyond that, I think, um, like we talked about earlier, please share your enthusiasm and try to build connections with people, whether it's your classmates or your professors or people in the community. Um, you never know what opportunities will come from those connections, uh, and they, it really can only serve to enrich our lives, um, particularly when everyone's working with the same goals in mind of, again, you know, improving the community. Stay curious. Um, it can be exhausting to be in school. Truly, I've been there. <laughs> and it can be exhausting to enter the workforce. But if you can try to stay mindful of why you wanted to get into this field in the first place and uh, stay excited and curious about what there is to learn moving forward, then your career can only serve to enrich your life. Uh, and hopefully you'll enjoy going to work every day instead of work feeling like a chore. So, Sam, if you could change just one thing in our current healthcare system, what would you change and why? I think if there was one thing I could change right now, it would be access to primary care. And I guess the magic wand would also have to include um, more family physicians. And I think it would also have to include better, you know, societal valuing of primary care. Um, there's often the hidden curriculum of specialty medicine being you know, more important than primary care, which is simply not true. Um, we know that primary, good primary care improves people's health um, and improves their lives, and um, we need to be valuing that. So I, I would love to see an overhaul, a complete overhaul of our primary care system, but um, that is aspirational at this point. Hopefully it's, it's achievable, but it is aspirational. In an alternate universe, what do you think the health outcomes of Canadians would be like if healthcare was under the federal government instead of primarily the provinces and territories? Um, I think we could see a bit better coordination of services. We could probably have some really incredible centers for excellence that served all the provinces in an equal way. Um, I. I guess it would probably change how taxation looks because <laughs> that's where so much of the funding comes from. Um, I, I'm not convinced that it would be better. <laughs> it would be different. Um, but it it would still we would still face the same challenges. Uh, one one struggle that is real in Canada is that, you know, by having all our provinces have separate, um, health systems, the smaller provinces really lose out on those economies of scale. When you're only serving a million people, it's kind of not quite big enough to actually um, have all the specialty care you need. Uh, and, and we see this play out in terms of um, access to care issues in uh, Newfoundland and the Maritimes, that sort of thing. So that would be balanced out um, and we would uh, 
there's already kind of some sharing agreements between provinces at times, but we would hopefully see that balanced out a little bit further. Our podcast aims to be community-oriented, and part of this involves encouraging our listeners to explore Kingston and engage with the community. So in that regard, what would be your favorite place downtown or near campus? Oh, my favorite place downtown or near campus. Hmm. I have a lot of memories here in Kingston. I mean, I've been living here for over 10 years, um, and uh, I've just had a lot of good moments here to the point where, you know, you walk around and you see um, different storefronts or restaurants or the waterfront and you remember great moments. Um, But I think I will always have um, a really deep fondness for the, um, what used to be called the new medical building and is now the school medicine building and the main lecture hall there just because we spent so much time there as students. And that was kind of my first introduction to Kingston. Um, going out into Kingston at large, um, we we love to go to Red House a lot. That's our usual, our usual go-to. Um, I don't make it out nearly as much anymore, though, with the kids at home. But uh, it, it wouldn't be uncommon for you to to see me on their patio on a nice day. Thank you for joining us today, Sam. It was an immense pleasure getting to learn more about you and your career. And I'm looking forward to our next class on Thursday, too. Oh, good. Well, I'm looking forward to it, too. I would love um, to to see you there. And uh, like I said, if anyone wants to meet me for coffee, um, feel free to fire off an email. And uh, I'd be glad to meet up. Thank you for listening to An Apple a Day Public Health Inquiry Podcast, produced with the generous support of Queen's University's Faculty of Engineering and Applied Sciences. 101.9 FM CFRC is broadcast from Queen's University in Kingston, Ontario, on the traditional lands of the Anishinaabek and Haudenosaunee peoples. For any questions, comments, feedback, or even just dropping a friendly hello, you can reach out to Day dot p-h-i-p at gmail dot com. Tune in next time at 101.9 FM CFRC.